when you sell a business and a new partner comes in, they're going to expect you to continue running the business. Right. Most of these people are looking for talent, right? I right. mean, there's not a ton of talent out there and there's a lot of money chasing, not so much talent. And so it's really driving home the expectations. Okay. Once we agree on an economic price, right? what is going to be your expectation of running the business day to day? And are you okay doing that with somebody who now owns the business that you used to own? Yep. Because most entrepreneurs struggle with the idea of, yeah, they're going to get a big payday, but man, what happens when now you have a new owner and you're going to have somebody checking in? Yep. Can you get over that? Yep. And for millions and millions of dollars, most people can, yeah. but not everybody can. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it would mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Today's a special day for me because I have one of my best friends, George Culturist, with me today. George and I uh, grew up going to TCU together in 04. We've been studying together We've stayed up late together, and we've been really good friends throughout our careers. Every time I have a discussion about business, selling a business, how to value a business, anything, George is my first call. And I said, hey, I need you to come do a podcast with me. And he said, I'll do it. George, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My first podcast will go easy on Here me. we go. <laughs> you were born for the camera. Nobody wears a jacket like that that wasn't born for the camera. All right, let's just start out. What have you been doing in your career since TCU, and what do you do today? Yeah, so uh, I graduated TCU in 2008, um, you know, right around the same time you did. And if you remember, 2008 was a pretty interesting time to get into the financial game, uh, gotten into investment banking. You know, it's funny because at that time, I didn't know exactly how I was going to get into investment banking. I was interning uh, with actually the group I'm with now, Western, here in Fort Worth. And oh, I forgot that. Yeah, so I ultimately ended up going to Dallas because some of the New York firms were blowing up. Dallas was trying to figure out what to do. Um, I wanted to kind of get some traditional investment banking experience. So I went to Dallas for about four and a half, almost five years and did the traditional investment banking route. Worked 100-hour yeah. weeks, had dinner at the office. Uh Monday through Sunday, all day, every day. And that lifestyle just kind of got a little bit old. It was great. I knew what I was getting myself into. I yeah. enjoyed it, learned a lot, but ultimately knew uh, my wife's from Odessa. I'm from Austin originally. We met at TCU and we wanted to get back to Fort Worth. You know, we think the world of Fort Worth. So we just ended up coming back here to Western. So you're at Western. Let's just talk a little bit before we get in. How's Western different than a lot of investment banks? Yeah. So, you know, we don't really call ourselves an investment bank. Yeah. We're basically, you know, a merchant bank savvy deal guys, right? We're kind of concierge service on the deal side. Um, we're pretty interesting because we have a different vantage point than most. We do a lot of sell side. We're going to talk about that today. Yep. Um, we do a lot of buy side work too. So we actually represent big public companies, even other private equity groups to help them buy certain portfolio companies, execute on theses, certain industries, et cetera. We also own businesses ourselves. Um, yep. We have some principal investments where we raise money uh, through high net worth individuals, our own money. Um, and then we actually partner with an RIA that we have a minority interest in to help then manage wealth for business owners and people we've sold their business for. And so we have kind of all those factions of a business. And so we see different points of a deal. So yeah. it gives us a little bit different viewpoint than just your traditional sell side investment bank. I love it. So sellers will 
uh, maybe one off will come to you and say sell, or like you said, a public company or a P company might come to you and say, hey, we need to buy lots of these types of businesses and you yep. kind of act on their behalf. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of times our core business is the M&A advisory, right? I mean, yeah. the principal deal is opportunistic. Our wealth management side absolutely has been kind of a core part of our business for the last 20 years. But I spent my entire day for the most part on the M&A advisory side. So that's yeah. helping privately owned businesses. That's helping the public company find or execute on a strategy that we're trying to solve for. Okay. Um, but a lot of times it's business owners who have never had a partner and there's a whole host of challenges they want to solve and we help them kind of think through what that looks like. Okay. All right. We're going to dive into selling a business. Okay. So like I said, I've talked to George for probably a hundred hours over the years about different nuances around business. So uh, what we what I want to start with is not only when you're selling a business, do you act as an advisor? You also kind of act as a psychologist. Yeah. Selling your business is tough. Yeah. So let's start with maybe expectation setting and kind of what should a seller and maybe we'll take this from like a large family business or, you know, something that's you're not buying a public company here, but maybe a family business or somebody that's selling for the first time or you know, it's maybe a little more emotional. What things should they have thought about and what expectations should they have going in? I know yeah. it's a big question. No, it's, but it's a, it's an important one. And, and for me, you know, to level set those listening or watching, most of the businesses we deal with are privately owned, family owned businesses, right? We're not selling the public companies and even the public companies we buy for, we're buying privately owned, family oriented businesses. Right. And so with that, it's not so transactional in nature where it's professional to professional and they just want to sell the business. It's super emotional. Yep. They're worried about their people. They've usually never done this before. And so, you know, I, I have the saying where basically my job, there's a technical skill set, there's a sales skill set, there's a, a, a financial skill set, but at the end of the day, it's managing expectations yep. and it's basically dealing with emotions that these these business owners have never gone through. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, there's plenty of times where we're going through a deal and I'm talking to somebody nine o'clock at night every night until we get a deal done. And that's just kind of part of it. Yep. And so to answer your question, man, there's a whole host of things a business owner should expect or really to get prepared to sell their business. Yep. Um, for the most part, it's really understanding what they want, right? Every business owner is different. Every business owner is at a different stage in their life. And so for some of our clients, it's, hey, they want to retire and get the next level of management into the business to now run the business. For some, they could be younger and they want to keep going. They're having fun, but they've reinvested every single dollar they have in that business. And they want to bring on a partner to recap the business, get a little bit of liquidity, and then keep going with yep. the thought of maybe selling it again down the road. Um, man, it could be situational. It could be that they've hit a point, they plateaued, and they need a little bit of kind of juice to get them going to the next level. And a partner or strategic partner kind of helps them do that. So, man, it's a whole host of things. But I think understanding first and foremost, what are you trying to accomplish? What does the business owner want? What are they trying to get out of it? That's the first part. And then, I mean, we can dig deeper, but then there's a whole host of kind of economic things you need to do or housekeeping things you need to do on a business to help basically go get it prepared and get the value that ultimately they want to see. And if somebody calls you and they say, you know, I'm ready to sell. And, I, and we've talked about this in the past, not necessarily to me, but when we've talked about, you know, things we're looking at or whatever, you're always like, are you really ready to sell? Like, do you have a number in mind? Have you talked through this? Blah, blah, blah. Like, speak a little bit to that. Like, what are just some like very things that when you've talked to somebody that really is really to, ready to sell, they've already kind of thought through? Yeah. So when somebody calls me and says, I'm ready to sell, A, 
that's usually not our typical client, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we're going into a business owner and we're getting them ready maybe three, five, heck, 20 years before they do it. Oh, wow. um, usually if somebody calls and says, hey, I'm ready to sell, there's like a red flag that we need to understand why. Okay. There, there's some catalyst there that we need to know about. Yep. But typically, let's just say somebody calls up and let's play that out. Hey, I'm ready to sell. Okay. The next question is, okay, what does that mean to you? Do you want to sell 100%? Do you want to sell 70% of the business? You want completely out? Do you want to roll over? Um, are you looking for a certain amount of liquidity after tax? Is this an estate planning thing? I mean, there's a whole host of questions that we go to to try to understand effectively the psychology of the business owner to try to figure out. Once we understand that, then we can dig into the financials and try to tell them, hey, here's what we think your business is worth and what yeah. we can go get into. But it's really understanding what are they trying to accomplish first and then deviating from there. Okay. All right. What are some of the, what are, when, when somebody's going to sell, and again, there's, this is a loaded question. We've got more detailed questions, but um, what are the biggest deal points when selling outside of price? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. And let's not forget prices. Yeah. Drives and, and, but it's funny when somebody tells me, Hey, by the way, the money doesn't matter. I'm like, <laughs> listen, man, the money always matters. Yeah. Like that, that's just, if you're telling me that, I know you're trying to position me for something <laughs> other than that. Right. And mind you, we deal on both buying and selling. So I hear on both sides of it, but <laughs> man, so, you know, the biggest things for them outside of price is again, okay, look, here's what my business is doing. And every business is different. For me, we deal a lot with businesses and industrials, manufacturing, you know, um, certain technologies or healthcare, energy infrastructure, things that are, you know, EBITDA positive, typically more than 5 million of EBITDA, but it's not your early stage tech stuff. It's not right. your early stage real estate or software. So that's my kind of world and mindset. So how I view it or how I think about maybe different than somebody else that plays in that game all day, every day. For sure. Um, but they need to know, you know, what is my business doing? How do I, outside of money, what does a partner expect of me, right? We talked about managing expectations. Most people don't appreciate that when you sell a business and a new partner comes in, they're going to expect you to continue running the business. Right. Most of these people are looking for talent, right? I right. mean, there's not a ton of talent out there and there's a lot of money chasing, not so much talent. And so it's really driving home the expectations of, okay, once we agree on an economic price, right? what is going to be your expectation of running the business day to day? And are you okay doing that with somebody who now owns the business that you used to own? Yep. Because most entrepreneurs struggle with the idea of, yeah, they're going to get a big payday, but man, what happens when now you have a new owner and you're going to have somebody checking in? Yep. Can you get over that? Yep. And for millions and millions of dollars, most people can, yeah. but not everybody can. Can most, yeah, can most owners become employees the next bite of the apple or do they think they can? So they think they can, but that's where the nuance is. Most private equity groups that come in on these things that we see from a recap perspective, yeah. they're going to make them own 20%. Yep. They might make them own 10%, 30%. And so that still gives them the mindset of I'm an owner yep. and you want to be an owner. Even some of our principal deals, I mean, we want that management team, the talent to be a part of it. That's super important. Okay. So if I said, um, what is the, per like, Okay, what are the different outcomes post sale for an owner? Anywhere from like you're gone the day the deal closes, like yep. see you off to the beach, all the way to the younger guy that just wants to keep going and going. So, like in who you deal with, what are the percentages of what are the different ways that owners before they sell um, act 
post-sale? Like, sure. what are the different ways? So um, I would tell you it's probably less than 20% of our deals that the owner is just done okay. and gone. Um, that happens. Yeah, That's a different conversation, a different valuation, a different buyer pool universe, partner universe than those who want to stay in it, right? Okay. Because like anything else, most of these financial buyers or even strategics, they don't want to run the business necessarily. That's why they need the management team or the talent. So they want them to stay in the business. So I'd tell you less than 20% is somebody who just leaves the next day. Now, yep. We've had them and they're out there. But again, that's a different kind of construct. Yep. Most of our deals are business owners that, again, either want some liquidity or maybe they hit an inflection point and they need to grow and don't have the personal capital to grow the business. Yep. So they could either go to the bank, they could raise money from a partner or they can do it themselves. Well, yeah. if they don't have the money, they need somebody to do it with. And so a lot of people will say, great, I want to bring on a partner. Uh, I want to figure out how to continue to grow this thing. I'm having fun. I know my business extremely well and I have all these growth opportunities, but I need somebody to help me get there. Yep. That's usually kind of the story we love to tell because particularly if they're ambitious to do that, there's plenty of partners out there that would love to help them. Okay. When you think about the boomer generation, they might family business. They might not want to sell to somebody else. Maybe they want to sell within the family. Yep. And we're like about to see this wave of boomers that we've been hearing about forever. Do you guys work with companies to help like sell to the family or even advise if they should sell to the yeah, family? Absolutely. And, and man, look, family business is a funny thing, right? I've dealt with family businesses that all get along and I've yeah. dealt with family businesses that none of them get along. And so yeah. again, it just depends on the construct of the internal family. We absolutely help families look at options internally. But you know the thing about the tax code or selling your business is you can't just give shares away, unfortunately. There's estate planning, there's tax issues with that. And so a lot of times what we see is there's this idea to try to get the next generation in there, but there's not an easy mechanics or mechanical way to do it, right? Okay. And so a lot of times that is a catalyst to go bring on additional money or bank financing or some sort of corporate finance thought process to help achieve that. Okay. All right. So I've decided I'm a seller. I'm going to sell with you, George. Let's talk about like the transaction. We'll go through all the nuance here. Okay. So there is uh, there's an asset sale and there is a stock sale. So, what are those? Yep. And what, what are the pros and cons of each? Yeah. So let's talk through that. I think part of it too would be beneficial to talk through how do we even get to that part? Let's, let's talk there. Let's start there. Because I think whenever we meet a business owner there's kind of a, a thought process on how to figure out, do we have a sellable asset? Is okay. there a good business, right? And so the way we approach that, if, if let's say, Chris, you come to me and say, George, I'm thinking about selling my business and okay. you own a manufacturing business or industrial service or distribution, could be any number of things. Yep. What we're going to do is after we get to know you and yeah. talk through the psychology of what you're trying to accomplish, well, then we're going to dig into the business, right? Okay. And we're going to get your numbers and we're going to look at your financials and we're going to start analyzing the business to say, okay, what have you done historically? What do you plan to do going forward? And what are the true fundamental drivers of your business? And we use a term in our industry called EBITDA. Okay. Most people know that's a proxy for cash flow. The reality is, is not all EBITDA is created equal, right? Because there's things like working capital, there's CapEx, there's things that eat up that cash flow, right? So when you, when we look at a business to value, we are first and foremost trying to understand the fundamentals of what's driving cash flow for that business. Okay. So we look at things like customer concentration, the margin of the business, where it's been, where it's going. Because the way we work and we're kind of a success fee oriented firm, right. we're going to dig in a lot earlier on and understand, okay, what kind of contracts do you have? 
Do you have any legal issues? Uh, how do you pay your employees? Are they W-2 or are they 1099? Do you have any FLSA issues? Um, you know, we're going to actually really dig into the business so we can understand where it's been, where it's going, and how reasonable is it to get to that growth plan so that we can come back to you and say, okay, great. We think your business is worth $100 million. Yep. And the way we get there is we run what we call kind of our model, right? Okay. And it's very similar in real estate. You have a cash flow stream. Yep. Somebody's willing to pay a price for that cash flow stream to generate a return, yep. right? Typically, private equity group wants to underwrite to a 20, 25% return. In this competitive environment, we've seen that come down. Yep. Um, and so we go to the business owner and we say, okay, based on this business profile, on yep. this normalization of the business and all these adjustments we've made, we think your business is worth $100 million which then backs into this kind of multiple in order to achieve that kind of return. Right. Assuming the business owner says, okay, great. That makes sense. We also talked about kind of the tax ramifications, right? So this will dovetail into your question about, you know, asset versus stock deal. If we said your business is worth a hundred million today, capital gains is one thing. Tomorrow, capital gains may change, right? Yeah. And so we very much are on the front end of making sure there's no surprises on, you know, people get fixated on multiples and headline number we're really fixated on what they're going to take home. We kind of have a saying about cash in their pocket, right? Cash yeah. in the jeans. That's really what's most important. So we're working with the business owner to play quarterback with all of his advisors say, okay, if we sold your business for $100 million, here's what you're going to get and here's how it looks. Yep. So assuming we come to an agreement there and he says, yep, that makes sense. I'm okay with that. Then we start talking through what that could look like and what kind of buyers are out there. The business owner that just wants to go home, once they get their money, that's a different set of buyers than the one that's younger or older, doesn't matter the age, but still has the desire to keep growing the business. They're going to bring in a different kind of partner. Does the seller usually uh, know who's going to buy their business? And do y'all usually know who's going to buy their business? And is, it, is there ever a surprise like, oh, wow, we never thought this company would have Yeah, there could the be. Absolutely. And so, I'll, I'll, for example... In a lot of industries that we deal with, we, we're very familiar with those industries, right? We, right? we transact a lot of businesses. We're in it all day, every day. So we know who the the typical buying pool is. There's plenty of times where business owners have been approached by other strategic companies or other family offices or whoever. And so they have an idea of those who have expressed interest before. All right. For us, you know, look, part of our job, honestly, is not only finding the price, but it's also the qualitative side of finding a good partner. Right. And so I would tell you, a lot of times we know who the buyers are. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of times where I may be in the middle of an opportunity and get introduced to somebody and they're new to the market and they're looking for that kind of business and then it just works out. Yep. Or a new fund that branched off from another private equity fund. And so I've never met them before under this new construct or, or private equity group, but they're looking to buy something, cool. right? So, I mean, most of the times we have an idea, but there are plenty of times where, I mean, you just might not know. Okay, so seller... You've underwritten the, the business. Uh, it's worth a hundred million. And, and before I ask the next question, real quick, um, this is something I remember we've we've talked about, and I've heard a lot of folks talk about it. How important is it that a seller has audited financials going into a sale, and do they get a premium if they have audited financials? It, it depends on the size of the business, okay. right? I mean, on a smaller business, if they have audits, um, the buyer's still going to do the work. We're still going to do the work. Right. Smaller business in a you know southeast state that is a regional accounting firm. That yeah, I mean they may put their stamp behind it, but there's still probably some things that they should be doing differently, right? Yeah. So, what I would tell you is it gives comfort for sure. I'm not, I don't think you're going to necessarily go get a premium, yeah. but it's definitely not going to detract, right? Okay. Um, whereas if you don't have it, 
the buyer's going to come in. You're going to have to have a Q of E done, which is a quality of earnings. A bank, if you're going to get bank financing, you're going to have to get that done for the bank to get comfortable. And so it's not so much a pricing premium. It's almost more of a housekeeping to get some of the other stuff done in order to get the deal closed. Okay. So uh, my business is worth $100 million. I agree I need to sell. Um, before I ask you what the next steps are once we've come to an agreement on sale, Who's typically been involved in the conversations even up to that point? Just the owner, the owner, the CFO, kind of nuance, depends. Yeah, I mean, I would tell you in all my answers, it's going to be nuanced. Yeah. It depends, right? Because every business is different. Every owner is different. I mean, I've had clients where it's just the business owner. The CFO doesn't know. And so he's trying to pull all the information. And that's a lot harder to do because he's so scared about letting it get out. And that, yeah. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Again, we're talking about business owners who don't want their employees to know. They don't want their customers to know. And so it's our job to keep it extremely confidential and discreet and not go blast it to the world because we don't want them knowing that. It's none of their business. Um, But then I've had other situations where uh, business owner knows, CFO knows, uh, you know, controller knows, basically everybody through the executive level knows. And it just depends. I mean, it depends how many owners there are and and how sophisticated the business is. Um, And then there's everything in between. Given your position, is there is there a situation you prefer over the other you could care? Um, no, I mean, look, typically the more people that know from a sell side client perspective, right. the easier it is right. given more information flow and you can talk to them and you don't have to kind of worry about who knows what. Yeah. It's just, it's easier mechanically to get something done, right? right? Um, the less people that know, the more chance for bottleneck of getting information and having things flow properly, right? Okay. But I mean, it doesn't improve value or not value. It's just more of a housekeeping deal. Okay, so I want to sell uh, what happens between the point I we agree on price and going to market to the day that we actually have found a buyer and yep. we're ready to go under contract. So typically, so Western does a little bit differently. I mean, we don't, what you're going to hear a lot in our world is kind of this auction mentality, right? Hey, we're going to go send it to 200 people, sign a bunch of NDAs, have this two-step process where they're going to give us an indication of interest. We'll maybe do some management presentations and find an LOI and go sign one. I've done that in Dallas. It's a good approach for some. It doesn't work for others. And for us, we found a more, what I would call kind of rifle approach on how to look at the end of the day, you need one buyer, right? Right. Most of our business owners who are more kind of discreet in nature, they don't want all their stuff everywhere. They don't want their customers to find out, um, their employees to find out. It's just a more sharpshooter approach, if you will. It's just more focused. And so- once we get in the business and we decide we're good on a value, we're going to make some, we're going to get the information and put it in a presentation, a much shorter presentation that hits all the high points. Yeah. Then once we find the right person and we have kind of that initial culture meeting that says, okay, Chris, here's your business. Here's what it's worth. Here's the buyer and partner. Man, it all gets along. Then we get into kind of your question on how do we actually structure a deal to get done? Yeah. Because I always tell business owners, there's kind of the qualitative part and there's the quantitative part, right? Right. And Purchase price matters, economics matter, but so do the deal terms. Yep. And those deal terms are just as important as the overall price and the structure and everything else. How, how long does it usually take from uh, like, hey, I signed my agreement to go to market to sell my business until y'all have found a buyer? Does that happen in weeks, months, years? No, I mean, man, I'll tell most people on average from the day we meet to the day we sign the definitive agreement with a potential suitor, with our partner, that's usually anywhere from six to eight months. Okay. I've had some deals take exactly one year and I've had some deals take four months. Yep. It just kind of depends. Okay. Um, but on average, that's a pretty good six-month window of the day we meet you and we break bread and we get to know each other to the day you know the cash is clearing and it's hitting your bank account. Damn. 
Okay. All right. So we're ready to go under contract. Let's talk about structure and terms of contract. Yep. Let's go into it all. So you want to start with uh, the entity classification? Yeah. So look, again, this goes back to at Western, you know, you have your tax advisors, you have your lawyers. Our job is to play quarterback in all this. And uh, I'm not a, a lawyer, I'm not a tax accountant, but I've been doing this long enough and we get so involved that we're pretty darn dangerous in all those aspects, right? Yeah. And so for us, you know, a C-corp gets treated different than an S-corp. An S-corp gets treated than a partnership. And there's different kind of elections and ways you buy those businesses that make it easy or nuanced versus hard and difficult on um, the stock versus asset deal, right? So whenever we approach a buyer, we want to, when we're representing the seller, we want the best deal for the seller, right? Right. Well, there are certain conflicting things that the buyer also wants to get done that we have to just meet in the middle. And it's always a negotiation, right? Right. At the end of the day, these deals are super sensitive and it's all one big negotiation. And that's kind of part of the psychology part of holding somebody's hand and let them know it does not happen overnight, right? So now we find a buyer. We, let's say we get an LOI. What we're going to look for are the deal terms. And so, okay, you'd asked me earlier, kind of stock versus asset sale, right? A seller always prefers a stock sale. A buyer always prefers an asset deal. Why? Because for a seller, typically when you sell the stock of the business, it's a better, more tax efficient structure from a capital gains perspective versus an ordinary rate perspective. Why? Because that's the way the tax codes were written. Okay. When you sell your stock, you are getting taxed at capital gains. Okay. Okay. Now, there are nuances to that, certain elections that may change that. But for the most part, that's the benefit because you're carrying on that stock. It's kind of like when you buy stock for Walmart in the public market. I mean, you're just, you're stepping in the shoes, you're buying the stock. Right. On the other hand, the buyer says, I want to buy the stock. It's a more efficient structure for you. That also means I'm stepping into your shoes and assuming all the liabilities of the business. Ah. Okay. So now if you have exposure or legal or something you don't even know about yet, I'm stepping into that. I'm taking the risk. And we'll get to that later on how we allocate risk in a purchase agreement. But that's what the buyer says, okay? Okay. Now, on an asset sale, when the buyer buys the assets, they prefer that because they can pick and choose kind of the assets they're bringing over and really the liabilities they're leaving behind. Right. Depending on a C-corp versus S-corp versus partnership, those all look slightly different from a tax perspective. When the buyer buys the assets, now they're leaving certain liabilities behind there's more tax to the seller. Right Now I got to go redo my contracts with my customers. Now I got to go rehire employees. And so typically for us, we're always pushing, I mean, I'm nine times out of 10, getting a stock deal done that's more beneficial to our client than an asset deal. Okay. Now, again, there are nuances where an asset deal is required because maybe they have a lawsuit that we can't get through, or maybe there's an environmental issue or an FLSA issue that we just can't solve. Maybe we work around it through an asset deal. Well, let's say there was a lawsuit and I'm buying the business. Yep. Does the lawsuit just stay with the seller, like in this entity with the seller, and they just battle that out, even though the business has been transferred? So good question. If you're buying the assets, yes, legally, you can structure it that way where it stays in the predecessor entity and it yep. sits there. Most of the times it's not that easy, right? Yeah. Because the business is ongoing. If you buy the stock of the business, theoretically, the buyer is stepping into that lawsuit. Now, mm-hmm. that's where the purchase agreement comes in. And most buyers are not going to say, hey, I want that exposure. right? So there's insurance, there's indemnification, there's certain things that they'll call out that say, hey, whatever happens to that lawsuit, you're responsible for. Yep. So if I get sued or if the judgment comes down and I owe you know, $5 million on this $100 million deal, you seller are 
saying in the purchase agreement, you're going to indemnify me for that $5 million. And do they usually just keep that in escrow or that is an insurance policy that's dedicated to that one event? Uh, Both. So it depends. If you can get rep and warranty insurance, which is another product in the transaction world that may cover things. In this case, if it's a known issue, known liability, they're not covering that. And so what most buyers would do is say, okay, if we can quantify this, we're going to put it in escrow for the amount of time we think we have exposure for. Okay. And we're going to have a holdback or an escrow to cover that. Before we get into how you spread risk, yep. um, can we just go through real quick the benefits to a C-Corp, an S-Corp, or an LLC? Sure. And and do most people, when they start their business, have they been that thoughtful to like really do it right? Or they get 20 years down the road and they're like, I don't even know why I'm a C-Corp. You know, most people, I would tell you, do not set up their business unless they're pretty sophisticated or have the mindset that they're going to sell down the road to set up their entities to sell the business, right? right. I mean, because if you think about it, most entrepreneurs, they don't create businesses to then think about selling them. They create it because they're either passionate about what they do, the product they build, the service they provide, or whatever that tactical skill set is, right? Yep. They're not thinking about, okay, let me go sell this down the road. Now, some investors or some financial entrepreneurs absolutely do it for that reason. Um, but so to go back to your question, look, a, a C-Corp is kind of the structure where it limits kind of the liability associated with ownership, right? Okay. The problem is when you sell, if you think about the C-Corp, it's kind of its own living entity. It's going to pay tax at the entity level. And then when it distributes or dividends out, it's going to pay another tax. Okay. When you sell the assets of a C-Corp, you're getting taxed twice. It is okay. super difficult from a tax perspective to sell the assets of a C-Corp because you're on a $100 million deal, you may get 50 out of it. Whereas if you sold the stock, you're getting 75, let's say. Okay. So so why the hell would you ever be a C-Corp? Because you're a public company, let's say, and that's just, you know, you're selling stock or your public company deals are different. Got it. Okay. Maybe you created your business 20 years ago and the advice was, hey, be a C-Corp because you don't want any liability, yeah. right? I mean, it's just, it differs. If you never thought you're going to sell your business, C-Corp rates were lower than the individual pass-through rates. If you're going to keep all the cash in the business and just keep reinvesting it, that's actually pretty good because you're paying less at the corporate level. Right. But to sell your business, if it's a C-Corp, I can tell you most buyers in a lower middle market to middle market, they come across a C-Corp, they're like, damn, this can is they, challenging. If I don't even want to sell, can I put my C-Corp and just turn it into an LLC before I go to sell? There's tax associations with okay. that. So now it's a deemed the asset taxes, sale. Yeah. And now, yeah, so it's all kind of structured around tax. Tax yeah. is very important, right? Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of people who make money based on just advising through this code, right? Yeah. Because it's pretty nuanced. Now, okay. what the IRS said is, okay, if you're a C-Corp, you could switch and convert to an S-Corp, yeah. okay? And that's a flow through. And that looks better from a tax perspective. But the IRS is also can be smart sometimes. I said, however, if you sell your business within five years, there's an additional tax because you're trying to game the system. Yeah. And so that's a lot of the questions we have. Somebody tells me they're an escort. I'm say, okay, how long? Are you a virgin S <laughs> or did you just convert? They're like 30 days yeah, ago. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, well, how when we sell your business, that's going to get you. I don't want that surprise because then a business owner is going to say, well, I thought you said I'd get $75 million after tax and now it's 60. Yep. Right? We don't want those surprises. Okay. And then LLC is kind of the best. Yeah, well, so it just depends on the structure. I mean, S-Corps, I think, are pretty attractive when you sell your business because of elections to get a deal done. Um, When you're an LLC, taxes a partnership. That's pretty easy, right? It's pretty straightforward. Um, Buyers tend to like that because whenever a business is buying another company, okay, this goes back to what people prefer. Whenever you buy a business, you can get a step up. Right. This goes back to the tax game. Right. So right. many times transactions are structured around tax implications. And so if I'm buying the assets of your business, 
um, or if I'm buying the membership units of a partnership, I still have the ability to step up my assets and redepreciate them, which helps with my cash flow. Yeah. As well as whatever goodwill I'm creating. Yeah. I get the ability to amortize that goodwill. Okay. Okay. Whereas in an S corp, I have to buy the assets of the business, which we just determined is a double taxation. You don't want to do that. Right. Or I can do what's called a 338, and we're kind of getting in the weeds here, but that's yeah. a special election that allows both buyer and seller to kind of get to a middle ground. Got it. Right. Okay. All right. So let's talk about how you allocate risk when a buyer wants an asset sale and a seller wants a stock sale. Yeah. So typically, uh, when we get in there, I mean, we're going to set expectations. Again, managing expectations all day, every day with the sell side client, all day, every day with the buyer, right? I mean, if there are certain expectations of the buyer that says, hey, guess what? This is going to be an asset sale. And here's how, you know, we're going to have a 30% escrow. This is just how we do deals. We're going to say, sorry, see you later. Like, we're just not doing that. Yeah. So it's talking through that. It's understanding what everybody wants. Um, typically, when we go and try to negotiate a deal, we're going to tell them we expect a sell side. Or excuse me, a stock deal. We expect a stock transaction. If it's an S corp, or if you do certain things that you get the benefit of, you have to pay us for that, right? right? And there's certain things called recapture and other again tax nuances that we then negotiate. When you have an advisor, most business owners aren't going to know that this exists, right? This right. goes back to the deal terms. Yep. Our job is to make sure they go get all the nuanced best terms they can, and so we help buyer and seller find that middle ground based on what buyers trying to achieve. And based on what the seller's trying to achieve. Because remember, most buyers are trying to do this deal for any number of reasons. They find it's a good opportunity. Maybe it's a new business line, new geography, new customer. Maybe it's the next generation of leadership that they're buying. And this next partner is going to roll up and run a lot of the business. I mean, it could be any number of things. Right. So, I mean, they're usually inclined to want to get something done. Okay. Typically. All right. Uh, deal structuring, cash, stock, earnout. So we've, We've made a deal. We know it's asset or stock maybe. Now we're like structuring the deal. Yep. So let's say you're a business owner. We have this $100 million deal on the table and that LOI comes to you and you're like, great, it's $100 million. Well, the reality is that $100 million may not be equal, right? Yeah. A lot of times buyer or excuse me, sellers are going to want all cash, right? Cash is king. That's what they want. Um, depending on the type of buyer, whether it's private equity, strategic company, public company, they may say, hey, we want a portion of cash and we want a portion stock. So for example, we do some buy-side work for a public company. A lot of times when we go buy a business for them, we say, hey, you know, 70% is going to be cash, 30% is going to be public company stock that's traded on the NYSE, right? So now seller has to look at that and make the determination, how risky do I think the stock is? Do I want a portion stock? Do I got to pay tax on that stock? What do I do with the stock going forward? How long is it locked up? There's all kinds of nuances, right? Right. Some buyers will come in and say, hey, let's say it's a private equity group. Here's $100 million, um, but actually we're going to pay you 70 up front and I want 30 million to be in an earnout. And so you have to go achieve certain milestones in order to go get that 30 million. And so that's where we come in and say, okay, well, how real are those milestones? Why are they doing that? Our expectation was 100 million up front. Why is there such a big gap? Can we bridge that? Right. And then determine if there's a way to achieve what everyone's trying to achieve. But, you know, a lot of times from a headline price perspective, buyers can get cute, sellers can not understand it. And so that's where we try to hold their hand and say, this is exactly what it means for you and why we believe or not believe this is a good opportunity. I know this is another one of those nuanced questions, but let's just say we're in that 30 minute, $30 million earnout. 
what are typically some things that must be done for uh, sellers to achieve their earnout? Yeah. So a lot of times we see it based on EBITDA performance, right? Okay. Let's say in a hundred million dollar deal, uh, it's twenty million of EBITDA. So you know, five times deal, right? Or ten million, ten times deal doesn't matter. If it's a twenty million dollar EBITDA deal, which would be a typical kind of ten to twenty million dollar EBITDA size we deal with, the buyer may say, "Look, in order to achieve the thirty million, twenty needs to be at least twenty every year for the next five years, and I'll pay you kind of pro rata." Okay. It could be a two year earnout where it says, "Hey, you got to get to twenty five and twenty seven in order to get fifteen and 15. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can yep. structure it. Most of the time, we see it basically based off of EBITDA. Okay. Okay. Um, but I've seen some that are based on retention customer retention, um, employee retention. I mean, you can base it on whatever you want, right? but most savvy private equity groups, most strategic companies, we're going to basically fix it to EBITDA. And on tenure, is there a certain time? Uh, let's not take the, the the young buck that is trying to recap and sure. continue to go, but maybe the the boomer that's trying to you know get to the end. How long do they typically stay on afterwards? Three to five years? Yeah, I would tell you whenever they do a deal, it depends, are they rolling over or not? Um, do they want, you know, they're going to sign a non-compete, right? That That's pretty typical. And I would tell you those are anywhere from usually five years, could be three, could be seven, but typically call it three to five years. And are those non-competes different than like your typical non-compete? Because in like a right to work state like Texas, right. where a lot of people are like, they're worth the paper that they're written on. Sure. Are these different? Not a lawyer, I right? Know. So here's the, the caveat for everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would tell you is depending on the state, uh, okay. California is hard to enforce, right? California is super employee friendly. They not make very it good, hard on everybody. But do not buy a business. It's hard to buy a business in California. How about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, back to your question. The only reason it's kind of different is because this owner is getting consideration. Yeah. Right? They're getting millions and millions of dollars to not compete with this buyer. Otherwise, buyer would not do that. Right. Right. And yeah. so, yes, I have absolutely seen non-competes enforced. But they also have to be reasonable, right? You yeah. can't go buy a business and I can't say, hey, Chris Powers, I'm going to pay you this money and you cannot operate in real estate ever again forever in the entire world. Like, right. That's not enforceable. Yep. But could I say, hey, uh, commercial real estate in Fort Worth, Texas, might be able to get away with that if yeah. I pay you money for it, right? So yes, we've we've seen it where they're enforceable. Um, we've enforced them and we've seen, and I deal with that with the seller. Hey, you have to be sure you're comfortable with this if you're going home. Right. If you're rolling over in the business, you're probably still running the business and you're okay. Yep. And it's tied to the purchase agreement. And on the earnout, it's not only the owner, but often could be a lot of the executives too that yeah. they, they try and tie up as yeah. well. So a lot of times we see a reason we sell a business, for example, this is one of your first questions. Why do why do people do this? Maybe uh, the George Coulters who owns a business has 100%. And man, his lieutenants have been there for 15 years and they're great. And he pays them good money. But he would love for that next layer to have ownership in the business. Yep. Finding a partner is a good way, in this case, a private equity group, where maybe owner now owns 30% of the business going forward. Right. Well, there's also going to be this kind of option pool, this extra incentive pool for now those lieutenants we just talked about to earn in the business the next go around. So now they're incentivized to create value, make the business better as they already were, and then get a pop at the end. Yep. A lot of times that happens. And so- you know, that is also another callus why a lot of our business owners say, okay, I think I'm ready to help them who they've been so good to me have some sort of liquidity event down the road. Yep. Okay. Let's talk about escrow. So escrow, it, it's funny in this environment, depending on how competitive the deal is, it used to be where 
a buyer would come in and say, hey, guess what? I'm going to escrow a portion of the purchase price. Yep. And that's what's going to be used in case shit hits the fan down the road. Yep. Um, that could be 5%, 10%, 20% depending on a deal, right? We've done a deal where they had a lawsuit and we, we escrowed 30% until that lawsuit got resolved and then they got all their money. Yep. In today's environment, it's a seller's market right now, right? Multiples are high, debt is cheap, uh, valuation looks pretty good. Um, usually we try to argue for kind of a, a lower escrow or an identified escrow to the extent you know something's going on, right? Because yep. otherwise as a seller, I don't want you holding my money, yep. right? I want my money. And if you have an issue, come talk to me. Yep. If I'm the buyer, I'm saying, listen, we want an escrow. If something does happen, I don't want to go to you, business owner, who may still be in the business yeah. and try to claw back. I'd rather it just be there. That way you never really saw it, but it's yours. Right. That goes back to psychology and it's a whole negotiation on not just points, but every single bit of it. Okay. Reps and warranties. So are you familiar with the reps and warranties are? I... I am, but I would okay. assume not one of my listeners. Oh, no, no I'm on. kidding. Surely, surely some are, right? Surely some are. I'm so kidding. reps and warranties in the purchase agreement, okay. that's what the seller is signing up to say, this is what I'm repping and warranting about my business, right? Yep. I own the business. I have the authority to sell the business. And there's buckets of reps and warranties. Yeah. There's fundamentals. There's garden variety. There's special line item indemnities. I mean, again, it gets really nuanced depending on the deal, but- yeah. For the most part, you're basically saying, here's what I am telling you is true about my business. Yep. If it's not true, you have the right to come back and I have the, I've indemnified you for things that are not true based on this set of reps and warranties. Yep. The buyer's going to want the most broad rep and warranty they can get because it covers the whole earth, right? right. The seller, we would work to help mitigate and or narrow those reps and warranties yep. because we don't want you to be on the hook for as much stuff, Right. Given today's environment, for all our insurance guys out there who sell rep and warranty insurance, it's a pretty neat product. I mean, it has changed M&A in the sense of as long as the seller is disclosing and the buyer is doing its diligence, you can go get this product to help mitigate who's on the hook for what because you feel comfortable you've done the diligence. Seller feels comfortable they've told you everything. If for some reason something happens, you're paying a premium so that the insurance company covers it. Got it. That helps both buyer and seller not have to worry about all the nuances of rep and warranty because you've done your work. Seller's agreeing to it. And now you have a third party that's getting a premium in order to cover that. Which look, in our deals, in the 15 years of doing this, there's been a very limited case of rep and warranties. And it's like every other legal document. You're worrying about the risk. That's probably not going to happen. But you still got to worry about it in the event it does happen. And your job is to make the reps and warranties black and white, no gray area. No gray area. Yeah. If I'm on the sell side, right? Yeah. I mean, again, it depends on where I'm on sitting. On the buy side. Who am I arguing for, right? right? But for the most part, it's pretty straightforward, right? Yep. Now, you go through it and every business is different. You may not be able to rep to something in particular, and we got to go through that. We got to disclose it, and we got to tell the buyer, here's the situation. At that point, the buyer has a decision to make to say, okay, is that a liability or an issue that I want to take on? Or is there a way to streamline against it? Okay. The only one we haven't chatted yet is covenants. And I know that's a very broad. Yeah. So, word. you know, covenants in my mind is something, there's two sides to that, right? In a purchase agreement perspective, when you're selling your business, the biggest covenant a business owner needs to think about is a non-compete. Okay. We kind of talked about that earlier, right? When you sell your business, you should expect to sign a five, three to five year non-compete, depending on the industry, depending on the situation. Um, 
most of the time that is going to be written where if you go violate that, you're on the hook. Yep. It could be uncapped. It could be the purchase price amount. I mean, obviously, we would try to get that negotiated down, but it's pretty similar or pretty, I would tell you, market-oriented to say, if someone's going to go violate that, they need to pay for that because that's yep. not the intent, yep. right? I mean, it's all about kind of the intent of the deal. Is an earnout the same as a seller note? No, because typically a seller note it looks like a debt piece of paper, right? Okay. So if I have a seller note, that's another structuring component. Yeah. I bought your business for $100 million, yep. okay? 70 million's cash, 15's earn out, 15's a seller note. Okay. okay. You get 70 at close. You got to pay off your debt. You get to keep your cash. That 70 goes to you. You pay taxes on it. The 15 of earn out is going to be contingent on you hitting certain milestones that we talked about earlier based on EBITDA or metrics or whatever. Right. right. So you may get there, you may not. The seller note is basically a financing tool that says, hey, I'm going to, you, this is your money. I'm going to pay you interest on it. Yeah. I just may not have the cash today. Got it. So typically that seller note is not contingent on anything other than I got to get to two years down the road because I may not have the cash today or whatever the reason. Yep. Or maybe it's just a incentive tool. Hey, stay on. We want you to get the business, but you're getting interest on it. Yeah. yeah. Usually it looks like debt. Yep. Okay. So the, the, the typical transaction, once you've negotiated the whole structure and gone on, you know, sometimes these can take a little bit and businesses, they can have oh, a flow. Yeah. The last 12 months look great, but something happened. Is the purchase price usually just that uh, easy that it's just a number? Is it usually like a formula that like we see where we're at at closing? Yeah, it's funny. Um, logically, you would think it would float. Yeah. In most deals, it doesn't float. Okay. And I would tell you when we're on the sell side, look. It, it ain't floating. It's not well. So well, maybe. Uh, maybe it is. It maybe. depends on the business. But no, I mean, typically in these deals, you don't see it floating, yep. right? Um, think about your business. Yep. In our world, you have the historical financials. You have the LTM period, which is the last 12 months. So that's a snapshot of where the business is today in comparison to a 12-month kind of running run rate of the business. Then you have your forecast, right? Our job as sell side is to go get a price based on probably either LTM or Ford numbers, right? Because we're saying we have all this growth in front of us. Yep. We want value for the growth we can create with or without you. Yeah. Some deals are priced on an average of the last four years. Yeah. Some price are just based on LTM today. Yep. And in three months, if your LTM is better, it's the same purchase price. Yeah. Because most buyers, the reason you pay a multiple on EBITDA or cash flow, they're kind of baking that all into their model, Got right? It. They're saying it's kind of like for you in real estate, you know, what are the certain levers you can push and pull occupancy, you know, build out rates, right? For them, they're saying, I believe your business is already built in that growth. And that's why I'm willing to pay you five times or eight times or 10 times. It's baked into that number. So as you grow, you should be growing. We yep. expect you to grow. Got it. Now on the other side, if shit hits a fan and the business falls off, you could probably expect a buyer to come back and say, what's going on? Right. We can't pay you the same purchase price. Right. Uh, you know, I've had plenty of situations, not plenty, but when I've been on the buy side where we've been in a deal, well, let's say it was a $50 million deal and we found that they didn't accrue costs a certain way, the way they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And there's an extra $2 million of costs that over a course of a certain period basically reduces EBITDA. Well, if you're paying 10 times on that business, that's effectively a $20 million valuation hit, yeah. right? Because now EBITDA is $2 million lower on a multiple. Now, in most deals, if you reduce purchase price by $20 million on a $50 million deal, you don't have a deal, right? right? And, and in that case, that's a little exaggerated. But 
very much. If it goes the other way, yeah, it's a lot harder to have any leverage on the purchase price you're getting. Before we talk a little bit more about buyers, obviously when you send, it's what's it called, a SIM or a deck? Yep. That's just kind of when you're sending that. That's out, like the investment banking true cool term. By okay, the way. what's what's <laughs> what's the 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 summary of the business? There you we'll go. call it. There you go. That's very high level. Yep. Not a lot of details. We're not throwing, but once. You know, it's like when I think about selling real estate, it's like, look, I can show you all my numbers because there's not a lot of employees associated yeah. with real estate. It's just a box with a tenant it's in it. It's kind of more tangible, right? Correct. It's maybe, I don't know if it's less emotional, but it, it's well, I just, And I just feel like if, if somebody saw my P&L on this building, the risk of what people could do with that P&L is, is a lot less in real yep. estate maybe than in business. So my question really revolves around privacy and comfort. Yep. Okay, the 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 memo or the summary has gone out. Now we're talking to call it two or three very interested, very qualified buyers that mm-hmm. are now all going to get that peek under the hood. How do you talk to sellers going, look, you're only going to get one of these, but two of these other guys might have seen absolutely quite a bit. How does that work? Well, and so look, depending on the competitive situation we're in, I may want two people in there. I may want a, a bidding war, so to speak, yeah. right? Of two people interested who can't live without the asset. And so therefore I'm going to maximize value. Yeah. But this goes back to managing expectations with psychology. Just because it's the highest price doesn't mean it's the best partner. Right. I might be able to take 10% less and be in a way better position because of terms and the partner than I am taking 10% more and your life's going to be miserable. Yep. And what's super important for us is all of our business owners that we've transacted with that our clients are friends, right? And so for us to be able to do this, I got to make sure they're happy. Yeah. I can't have somebody call me up and be like, George, what the hell did you do to me? Like, these guys are terrible. And that usually doesn't happen. I mean, we do our, our job is to make sure we're not bringing in people who are going to ruin for your sure. life, right? So yeah. aside from that, back to your question of, okay, people do look at this information. We're pretty cognizant about who's seen what. I mean, I'm controlling every single little bit and kind of plays to my OCD, right? Uh, Knowing who has what, what they've seen. I'm managing the message. I'm managing the conversations and I know exactly what's going on. Again, it goes back to the quarterback deal. Nothing happens without me touching the ball, right? So with that, if it's a strategic, they may not see all the same information because we're more guarded about that. They may not know who my customers are. They may just know it at customer A or B. So it kind of just depends on the situation. But given the fact that other people know it, Look, private equity is in the game of buying businesses, right. growing businesses, and ultimately getting a return for that business. Right. You kind of got to know that going into it, yep. right? And you have to realize that there are going to be other people that are going to see your information if we go down that path. Now, three people seeing your stuff is a lot different than 300 for sure. seeing your stuff. Yep. And we're pretty, I mean, that, that's a big deal to us. Yeah, and yeah. To most of our business owners, that resonates. And then do, do the sellers, let's just say we're kind of in this three uh, buyer situation, do the sellers usually spend like a full day with each buyer kind of getting to know them? And like, how long does that marriage process take to pick the right buyer? So in a typical M&A two-step process where an investment bank's just going to basically broad auction the thing. Yeah. Right? And I'm going to use that as a benchmark to contrast with kind of some of the way we do it. Right? Okay. In that auction, they're going to call 200 people. Yeah. They're going to get probably 30 indications of interest. That is basically a document from this buyer universe that says, Here's what we think we would pay for the business with limited information. And it's usually a range and it has certain things in it. You try yeah. to get the most you can, but that's typically what it is. From there, 
you may invite, you know, of the 30, 10 people to come meet the management team. And they do these things called management presentations where they can meet them. It's a four hour presentation. And man, that's just a whip. Like it's a yeah. lot of work. And for most business owners that we deal with, man, they don't have time for that. They're yeah. running a business, right? And so that's pretty hard. So contrast that with us. At that point, if we have three buyers that are really interested, they would have met the management team already. And yep. so that may be a dinner and a meeting the next morning and kind of walking the facility or seeing the plan or seeing the services or whatever. It could be just a lunch where, man, you talk about your interests and what you want to do and what you want to get out of it. Yep. In our world, in the space we play in, the most important thing about getting a deal done, whether you're seller or buyer, is the people. Yeah. Got to have good people. Yeah. And a buyer has to get comfortable with the marriage, so to speak, just like the seller does. Right. And I tell our business owners, man, all the time, headline price matters. You you got to make sure you have a good marriage here. That's super important. Is there is there any um, thing you've learned over time? Because everybody shows up well. It's like when you sure. interview, you've got your best stuff. Yep. How, how should a seller... Is there certain questions or... I know you represent both sides, but like how do you damn well know you're found the yeah. right people. I mean, look, like anything, there's some risk to everything, yeah. right? You you can't figure out just every single little thing, but I think that comes with experience and handicapping every single component of a deal. Yeah. Whether that's the person, the deal itself, the economics, the growth, how they're going to grow it, are they going to put money to work? But man, it's through conversations and it's through experience and kind of just savviness on our side yeah. to know, okay, this guy's done it before. He's yeah. got a good reputation. We've channel checked it just like he's channel checked us. And no one's raised their hand and said, he screwed me. How do deals fall apart? I know we don't have to go into a really long answer. Obviously the market can change. Yeah. COVID I'm, can hit something yeah. crazy. But like, are there more kind of common like that you've over time gone like, and maybe maybe it's not how do they fall apart, but things you can spot really early to go yeah. like this is going to eventually kill the deal if we don't, or get we it won't now. take the deal on. Right, right? there right, are right. plenty of situations where we've been introduced to business owners and we get in there and maybe their accounting's just really bad yeah. and they're not even doing it right. So we fix that and we go through it, but we're going to take the time to fix it before we go out there. Maybe they have a lawsuit that. If the judgment goes against them, it could bankrupt the business. Right. Well, no buyer is going to step into that. We got to work through that, right? right? Um, maybe they're not paying their employees overtime correctly. Right. Or maybe they're 1099 when they should be W-2. Yeah. None of that ultimately kills the deal in isolation. Put all those together and you don't have as sophisticated of a business that ultimately a buyer may not get comfortable with. Got it. Um, but like for COVID, for example, uh, we had plenty of businesses continue to do great. We had one where a private equity group um, was going to buy the business. We were pretty close to getting it done. They were very much exposed to the restaurant and the multifamily component of the world or mm -hmm. the industries. And so based off of that with COVID, as you well know, I mean, yeah. that just stopped. Yeah. And so now they don't want to get this, uh, call it, you know, industrial deal done. They got to focus on licking wounds over here. Yeah. That literally killed the deal. Yeah. I mean, I would tell you though, for us, by the time we get to a certain LOI yeah. and we've done a ton of work, we know what the surprises could be. We pick the right partner. It's very rare for us to go from LOI to dead deal. Yep. Something would have to be pretty catastrophic or truly not misrepresented, but just omitted for yeah. whatever reason for that to happen. Cause we're going to spend a ton of time on the front end because we don't like surprises. And, and, and I, we've talked about this in the past, but just remind me, all banks charge differently 
Western doesn't actually charge a seller a damn dime until it's closed. So yeah. you're not going to put in the time unless you've checked all the boxes, whereas maybe a traditional investment bank might start charging you retainers and fees whether yeah. anything happens or not. No, and that's important. That's that's kind of how we built our business over the last 20 years is yeah. for us. Look, the typical investment bank is going to come in and say, hey, I want a retainer for 50 grand. Yeah. I'm going to put this book together. You're going to pay all my expenses, yeah. uh, reimburse me for my expenses, and then I'm going to get a fee at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll, I'll uh, put the retainer, I'll credit it back to the fee, but I, I want that up front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to do a little bit of work, put this big book together. They're going to go blast it out to everybody and either a deal gets done or it doesn't, right? Yeah. For us, we found that it aligns better with our types of clients and businesses to get in the trenches with them, yeah. right? And, and this is what's so fun for me, kind of now have done this for a little bit, is for you to talk to a business owner that I've been in the trench with. And they say, man, you know, for Western, no retainer, no expenses, success fee only, and so what that drives is this incentive to have a very transparent relationship because, man, if I'm going to take this risk with you, you're damn well going to know what I think. Yeah. And I'm going to know what you think yeah. because I can't afford to go six months down the road and not get a deal done and have all this sunk cost in there. Yep. It doesn't do me good. It doesn't do you any good. On the flip side, if something does happen and we don't get a deal done, I don't want you mad that you paid me 50 grand for not getting a deal done. Yep. I'd rather all of us be in it together and, you know, it comes back to all the diligence we do on the front end. We are going to pick apart and understand the business because I don't want any surprises. Right. So I'm going to really understand your business and tell you too, this is important because a lot of people will come in and say, hey, your business is worth 10 times. Um, you know, it's funny. I got, I got a friend who owns a business and he calls me yesterday and goes, hey, have you heard of this group? Uh, they sent me this random letter and they told me they could get me 12 times for my business. I'm like, man, and, and this is, by the way, this is like- And told me to pay a retainer real quick. <laughs> and, and, he said, and he said, oh, by the way, he asked for my credit card number, right? <laughs> and I'm like, that's that's terrible, right? I mean, that's just not the way it should operate. Yeah. And so for us, it's, if your business is, you want $100 million, but I think your business is worth 50, I'm going to tell you that today because I don't want to go down the road, tell you it's 100, go get 50 and know you're not going to take it. Right. It doesn't do me any good. So again, for us, we believe it incentivizes people to be kind of on the same page. Okay, one more question on kind of transacting. And then I want to talk more about the the broader market and what you're seeing and what you're thinking going forward. But um, let's just assume back to that three buyers and a seller. Yep. And maybe one's like a family office, sure. one's strategic, and maybe one's private equity. Do you treat the strategic buyer not differently, but like, let's just say the strategic is my biggest competitor. Yeah. Uh, if I don't pick them, but they've gotten this great peak underneath the hood and they're not necessarily in the business of buying businesses. Yep. So what, how do you, how do you, you know, uh, think about those situations? So, man, that's a great question because there's strategy yeah. to how we're talking to these buyers and how we stagger those conversations okay. and even the information we get, right? Okay. If the person's in the business, it's your strategic they know the business. They yeah. don't need every single detail, right? They need to know what they need to know to make a good, solid, sound investment decision. So what do right? they need to know? So they're going to have some financials. Yeah. They can know an you know, anonymized customer, right? They want to know if there's one big customer, 10 customers, or hundreds of customers. They're going to want to know what the management team is doing. Um, and they're going to need to know where the business is going and how they plan to get there, right? They don't need to know every single contract I have, every employee name, you know, just some of those nuances where for a private equity group, it may not matter. For a family office, it may not matter. We're pretty cognizant of those conversations with somebody particularly in the space that may or may not compete with you, okay. right? But like, it, it look, in that case, 
I think it's also important to know family office versus strategic versus private equity. Guarantee you those three deals will look three different ways. Yeah. Right. It may all be a hundred million in our example, but those terms and those conditions and the way that they view value and going forward will look completely different. Family office may say we want to own 30% or we may want to own 70% and we're going to be extremely passive and, you know, we don't buy businesses every day. So this is important for us and we're going to be real risk averse. Right. The strategic is going to say, we may not want you to own, you can't own anything. We're going to buy hundred percent of your business, but we're going to have this W2 comp plan for you. You're going to be a manager. Here's what you're going to do. Continue running your business. And here's how you're incentivized from a true kind of salary bonus perspective. Yep. Private equity group is going to say, Hey, I want you to own 30% of the business. We want to go grow this thing. I'm going to put a bunch of capital behind you so that if, in this example, you're 20 million of EBITDA, hey, in five years, we're going to be 40. And now we're going to go sell that for you know $200 million. And you're going to get a piece of that because you still own the business. But you have to know that the family office, you may be there forever. The strategic, you may be there forever. The private equity group, there's going to be another transaction. And the business owner has to be okay with that mentally to know what he's getting into. Just in the one situation where a PE company buys you, you're rolling forward. And that's that feels like to me like maybe the stickiest marriage, the one where the the buyer might be depending the most. I'm not saying the others don't. Like what should sellers ask private equity? Like what's my life going to be like? 100%. I've owned right? my I business mean, forever. I've never had to answer to anybody. What should I get to know from the private equity firm to make sure I've checked off my box. Yeah, because look, not all private equity groups are treated the same or, yeah. or developed the same, right? I, I feel like when I talk to business owners, particularly in this baby boomer situation where I think they have this negative connotation of private equity um, in the sense of, you know, they remember the corporate raiders from the 80s. They know all these stories and, you know, they come in, they pay you money, they put all this debt on your business and they just cut costs, right? They don't give a shit about anybody. Yeah. The reality is that's not how it works. I mean, there are those out there, but you kind of know they're out there. And with our business owners, we're not putting them with those people because it right. doesn't make sense. And right. so, you know, if you're a business owner and you have a conversation with a private equity group, you want to know how do they treat their other portfolio companies? Do you squeeze costs out of this? What is your goal? When do you plan to sell? How long do you own businesses? Are you an active board member or are you a passive board member? Talking once a week on operations is different than talking once a quarter to check in on how things are, you know, varying from the budget you put for, mm -hmm. right? Um, do you have other companies in my space? Can we leverage the private equity holding company for insurance or benefits or other things, debt financing? Like what things are you bringing to the table outside of just money? And then talk to me about an example when a business went not great and how did you interact with your business owner? Yeah. Because when things are great, everybody's happy. Yeah. It's when things kind of turn sideways or at least become neutral to negative that you really start figuring out the relationship. And that's like any partnership. And so I always tell people, look, break bread with them, understand how they view the world, figure out what kind of companies they like to do business with, and then talk to them about their strategy. Because you have private equity groups that are really operationally focused yeah. and some that are just more financially driven that just wanted this accumulation of portfolio companies and good businesses with good people. And there's everything in between. And they'll usually tell you, these are the decisions you're going to be left to yep. make. And these are maybe some decisions that we're going to make or at least make together. Yeah. And I would tell you, you know, the more sophisticated the private equity group, they're going to talk to the business owner. They're going to say, hey, look, in the first hundred days, this is what we want to get accomplished. Yeah. And maybe it's a more sophisticated ERP system. Maybe it's making sure financials are gap, making sure it's converting FLSA and, and 1099 to W2. Maybe it's 
targeting these customers that we want to go get. So let's go focus on that. Um, they're going to tell you how that plays out and they're going to want to talk to you about that. And so I think for the most part, kind of that transparency among partners is you should get a good feel for what are your expectations of me going forward and vice versa. Yep. Okay. Um, I've been trying to ask this the right way. We now live in a generation of software, have been for a while. Shouldn't say that like it's like new. But there's a lot of companies that build proprietary technology that they don't necessarily sell to everybody, but everybody yep. now has their own proprietary Absolutely. technology. Um, it's one thing to value a business based on EBITDA, but uh, how do I ask the question right way? Like, how often are you also having to give a lot of special attention to like this proprietary technology, or does it really just all boil back down to EBITDA? It's like your proprietary technology helps you make this much EBITDA, and therefore it's not really worth what you think it's worth. Man, that's a hard question because if the if the technology itself, and again, based on the world I deal with, which is manufacturing, industrial, kind of business services, whatever, right? Distribution. Yeah. Um, if you have this proprietary technology and you're not selling it, right? So there's not a revenue stream, right. but it's making your business the most efficient right. or the most productive, or your margins are better than your peers because of the way you're using this, or your customer base is stickier because they need that software and nobody else has it. Right. The way I think about that question is you're not going to get isolated value for that technology, right. but it's going to be inherent in the price you're getting paid if it's positioned correctly to go get you a bigger multiple on the cash flow that it's helping generate. Got it. Okay. Does that answer your question? It was better than I could have uh, expected. Okay. Yes. <laughs> because I, I just think I hear more. Everybody now is like, I have this proprietary stuff yep. and I don't sell it, but I'm yep. better than everybody. And it's like, well, okay, but that should just show up in in like some financial metric and in yep. any sophisticated buyer. And I actually have a couple case studies in my experience where certain, let's call it um, either oil filled or other industrial type logistics companies had developed this exactly internal, awesome software to make their world way more efficient. And they went through the business process of understanding, okay, do I sell it or do I just keep it internal? Do I go license it and get cash flow out of it? Or do I just keep it for me and reap the rewards of it? What we found is that business owners like their business. They have this cool, new, hot, shiny project. They think it's worth the world, right? Well, the reality is it's really hard to quantify that yeah. unless you have something to quantify. For sure. And so my experience is that unless you have a really good business plan on how you're going to go get revenue and profit ultimately out of that, All right. it's better to make your core business more efficient because that's where you're going to see, that's where you're going to reap the reward. That's where right. you get the arbitrage on the multiple technically. Okay. I just thought a fun question would be, you've seen, uh, you've been you know, got to watch all these cool business owners that have probably built their business for decades actually transact and sell. What's like closing day usually like? Like, how do these people react after, even if they're staying on, like, it's got to be this crazy experience. Yeah, so it, it's funny. Um, closing day itself can sometimes be anticlimactic. Right? Well, I was anticlimactic yeah, only yeah, because yeah. leading up to it, I mean, I'm telling you, man. It's on, stressful until, yeah. Yes, on any given deal, there's one, and he'd love to tell you about it. I mean, he had a, an overseas division and then we were waking up at 2 a.m. every day from 2 to 8 to deal with all the UK stuff. Then we'd have to start the regular day to get everything done. And we did that for a week before that deal closed. And ultimately, <laughs> we got it done, right? But 
leading up to that, it's kind of the fun and the adrenaline. And then on the day of close, you're basically like, okay, uh, we're good to go. The lawyers are set. Signature pages are received. Anything changed in the business? Nope, good to go. Okay, hey, look, we're really excited about this. Hit the wires. You know, there's usually a speech like rah, rah, rah. But at the end of the day, you're hitting wires and everyone takes a deep breath. And then you're like, is the seller usually in the room with you? No. So since I've started, right, uh, from, you know, early 2000s, middle 2000s, people would get in a room together and actually have a physical closing, right? And it was all this deal. As email took over and data rooms took over virtually, I mean, paper is just transmitted digitally now. I mean, hell, this last deal we did, we closed on Friday. We did it DocuSign. I mean, I've never done a deal on DocuSign and, and that's becoming more relevant as technology takes over. There are certain things we can do now virtually that otherwise we we didn't. But no, most people are in their own little offices and you know, everyone says, congratulations, the wire's hit. Now look, when the wire hit, the business owner feels pretty good, Yeah, right? That looks pretty cool. Uh, I had one business owner once send me this meme of this guy hitting the refresh button. <laughs> it was fantastic. And it was, it was so, it was awesome because, you know, for him, he's like, here we go, here we go, here we go. Yeah. And then it hits and then they kind of, you know, get back to, you know, at the end of the day, they've got to go to business the next day. Yeah. Right. And you still got a business to run. Yeah. I just think that's, I mean, it's really cool. Um, all right. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about the market and then uh, we'll, we'll bring it home. But um, the the boomer generation, you know, there's all this talk about there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of businesses that are yeah. on the docket to transact. As someone in your position, like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a big catalyst for us, right? I yeah. mean, for our side of the world in M&A, right? So yeah. we don't do a ton of capital raising necessarily. I'm focused on transacting businesses, mergers and acquisitions for the middle market. These business owners, you'd be surprised, a lot of them don't have a plan, right? And so that's where it goes back to your very first comment about, hey, somebody calls you and says, I'm ready to sell. A lot of times this takes effort to get them prepared and these baby booners are going to reach this inflection point where maybe they don't have somebody in the business. Maybe him and his partner, he, her, whoever have divergent interest, right? Um, maybe they're just tired. Yeah. Maybe they need more capital or growth and they don't want to go to the bank and they don't want to personally guarantee. Those baby boomers are hitting all of those decision points, sometimes all of them at the same time which then leads to us hopefully getting introduced, playing the seed, educating them on, okay, well, let's go figure out how to go solve these things. Solving one business partner getting out looks different than solving you being tired versus solving to go get you money to keep growing the business. Right. But look, I mean, the baby boomers is a real deal. Um, I think it's a great time to be an M&A uh, given the environment and where things are going. Um, we'll see how what happens with tax rates and all that. But I mean, I can tell you right now, we got a backlog of deals just given the fact that Baby boomers are getting older. Tax rates are potentially going to change. Debt's still cheap. And so I just think that, look, you're going to see this kind of influx of deals um, ready to go. Is there a case that prices could actually come down if there's a flood of sellers and is like and not as many buyers? Man, you'd be surprised. I don't think so. I mean, it depends on the market and the industry. I can tell you in some of the infrastructure uh, industries I deal with, almost like every infrastructure business is selling for a very good multiple. Um, and it just depends on the business and the market. Yeah. There's plenty of money out there. There's a ton of private equity groups chasing these businesses. Um, and I mean, look, the reality is there's more money out there than there is great talented business owners. Yep. There just is. If you're working with a seller that uh, maybe they call and they're, I don't want to sell right now, but you said that it, you could work with somebody for a year to three years. 
again, we don't have to go like super nitty gritty, but like, what are you actually doing with them over a three-year period to get them prepared to sell? Yeah. So a lot of times we meet a business owner and he's like, uh, we go through the process I mentioned earlier, get the numbers, normalize it, talk to him about it. And we may say, hey, your business is worth $30 million. Oh no, it should be 50. And here's why my buddy sold for this multiple. Well, yeah, but either different business or you don't know what he times it by or half the time it's not right. Right. So, okay, you want 50. Well, here's what you have to do typically from a performance deal, or maybe it's the FLSA or things that they need to clean up in order to go get the 50. So we've had this a handful of times. I mean, where we shine is getting involved on the front end to help them get there. Right. And so over the course of one year or five years or two years, doesn't matter, help him think through, okay, how do I professionalize this business? Hey, what's my goal? If my goal is 50 and I need to get to 10 million of EBITDA. How do I do that? Do I diversify my customer base? Do I focus on better margin business and kind of look at the 80-20 rule and not worry about some of the stuff that's just dragging me down? Do I get an ERP system? Do I need a CFO, right? A lot of times companies don't have the financial wherewithal or the financial construct or they don't think it's a good investment to have the data at their fingertips. Right. I would tell you it's always worth the investment right. because as a business owner, you need to know where your business is at any given day and look at the financials and the performance and and how the company is looking and performing. Um, so we may help them with that. Uh, yep. We may introduce them to advisors from an estate planning perspective. Um, you know, we have the true north side where we, a lot of times they'll talk to our wealth managers to say, Hey, here's what I think I need to live on. Can you make sure that I'm thinking about that correctly? Yep. Okay. Well, let's make sure we're going to go get a liquidity event that matches what you need. Yep. Right. Um, so it could be any of all that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're not getting in the business day in and day out, right? We're helping them be a sounding board as they evolve kind of how they're thinking about things. Right. All right. Just a couple more. Uh, just, I just kind of wanted to talk about a little bit your experience through COVID. Y'all had yeah. one of your best, like there's yep. actually a lot that happened. Um, has anything, uh, maybe more just like specifics since you talked to lots of businesses, we don't have to talk about how COVID was. I mean, I, I'm trying to, you know, hopefully get away from, get away from that. <laughs> but uh, there was just two things that come up over and over and over. And maybe since you talk to people intimately, and I don't think maybe you have um, some interesting perspective, but what are your business owners uh, talking about around talent and the ability to hire labor right now? Biggest discussion we're having on any given business. Okay. Does not matter the business. Labor is at a shortage right now, okay. right? Hey, maybe people don't want to work and you can have your own thoughts on that, right? Yep. But Maybe they were getting funding or government or whatever. And so, look, they weren't going to work. And that's kind of the maybe uh, skill set that's more hourly in nature, right? Yep. Um, maybe it's a trade profession. These industrial companies, these <clears throat> infrastructure businesses, there's just not enough trade skill set to bring on the work and take on all the work that's necessary. Um, a lot of times when we are selling a business and we're buying a business for somebody and we put forth these growth plans, we absolutely dig in and make sure that the growth plans we're putting forth are reflective of the labor pool we can realistically go get. Right. It's funny, when I sit on the buy side, I get a lot of these investment banks that put these books out and they're, oh, we're going to grow 30% year over year. I mean, you can't even get the labor to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's no, literally, I don't think mechanically you can go do this. And yeah. so it's a big discussion and yeah. it's not so much COVID driven. There's a part of that as yeah. it is, there are certain pieces of the market that are just white hot right yeah. now. Yeah. All right. What about supply chains? Big issue, depending on the business, right? Yeah. I mean, you hear it around here, steel's moving up and down. We sold a business that uh, was an aftermarket's part where you saw in, you know, steel prices go up. Well, 
you can't always pass those through. So you got to deal with that. Um, one of the industrial distribution businesses that uh, I'm close to, you know, they source from all over the world, right? Steel. Okay. How is that coming in? Well, it's been on crates forever, much longer than what historically is. So now you're working capital is changing because you're having to buy inventory way longer or way ahead of time and you're putting that cash outlay out sooner. And so supply chain is an issue. Um, you know, however you view inflation, you're seeing some of those costs incrementally rise. Um, we have another business where we've saw margin deteriorate in Q2 because of supplies. Yep. Not only not being able to get them, costing more. Right. And on some of these project-based construction businesses, you've already set your price. Yeah. So you're stuck. You can't yeah. just pass things through. Now you try to go to the customer and work through all that. But I mean, you know, I mean, you, you're kind of stuck. You got to yeah. work with it. So it's an issue. I mean, we're dealing through it, but it's an issue. Yep. All right. I got two kind of fun personal ones and then we're done. If you could ask Warren Buffett one thing about buying businesses, what would you ask him? And just one? Or Okay. If, <laughs> if you could sit with him for an hour, if you got an hour of his attention, what what types of things would you want to know from him? I would spend time understanding how, through his experiences, he was able to handicap personalities. Yeah. Right. What were the things that went wrong? Look, man, at the end of the day, I feel like valuing a business, I mean, there's certain academic ways to do it. Most people view it the same way. Then there's some art on kind of how to position it and what you're willing to pay and what you're not. Psychology is so important in this world and yeah. in this in this game, right? And so for me, if I had a chance to talk to Warren Buffett, I would say, look, really awesome with what you did on the bets you picked. How did you know that these people were the right people to do it with? Yeah. And what have you learned that burns you with certain people? Because I want to know what to look for. Yeah. And given his experience, I mean, think about how many businesses he's seen. And look, for us, the lower middle market, middle market, it's a lot different than dealing with the Heinz and the businesses he's buying, right? Yeah. But he's still making bet on people. Right. And I think what I've learned and what I would ask him is, okay, what are some of the red flags you've seen in dealing with people? Because that's the stuff I got to manage all day, every day. Yep. And either it works or it doesn't. But man, I'm sure you've learned something or you can now pinpoint, hey, when you've seen this in the past, you knew it was going to lead to this. And that's just experience. Yep. And I mean, he's one of the best that's ever done it. I'd love to know how he handicaps that stuff. Yep. Handicapping him and then incentivizing him. He's just a he's What a would pro. you ask him? Honestly, mine was is probably it probably actually piggybacks off that but it's really the incentives like because what he does and often is he owns 100% of the business yep. but he's created incentive structures that keep business owners around not just for two or three more years i think he jokes that like his average executive age is like 80 these people yeah, work until forever. they're ever um and probably a lot of that goes to him seeking out kind of founder owners that, yep. whose life is in the business and he probably knows like there's no way this person could ever think about anything but that. But then how he incentivizes everybody to keep going for for a long, long time and feel comfortable just shipping him like billions of dollars while he's eating <laughs> peanut brittle. Uh, <laughs> Drinking his Coke, I know. Coke in Nebraska and just hanging out. And then I'd probably just talk to him about his uh, relationship with Charlie Munger, yeah. like what they talk about and they don't live in the same city. They don't talk every day anymore, but they, they have a cadence and a way of, of doing things the the decentralization is pretty fascinating. Yeah. And look, and it would go back to, for me, okay, not only just the investment methodology, but how did you get comfortable on how you built your own internal business, right? right? 
conversations with Charlie. How do you know when the right person is there and how do you take advantage of that opportunity yep. without getting ahead of the game or yep. without offering too much? Or what is that right kind of, to your point, cadence on building a business? And, you know, we talk with business owners all the time about that. Okay. If you're ready to sell, are you going to stay? Do you want to stay? Do you have the right people underneath you? Because what you're trying to do is kind of perpetuate legacies here, right? I mean, you are trying to create something that otherwise wasn't created before and you need people to backfill that. I have to imagine if you're 65 or 70 and you're wanting to sell, the typical answer is like, I'm not looking to go for 10 more years. Yeah, probably not at that age. But I mean, think about it. A lot of entrepreneurs, they may have started at 20 or 30. By the time they get to 45 or 50, they've built some great businesses. And so- they may not be a baby boomer by definition. I don't know if that hits the actual definition of it, but they've gotten to a point where they've reinvested everything in their business. Right. They've gotten some money out of it, but the reality is they need an event to help them get some liquidity. Yep. And so, you know, but any private equity group that we talk to and we talk to, you know, however many all day, every day is they're looking for the right people to come in, continue running the business, manage the business, and they just kind of want to accelerate these growth plans and maybe be a little bit more strategic and challenging the business owner um, about how he views things. I mean, that's one of the feedback points I get often is, man, I thought I knew a lot about my business. It's amazing when I have somebody else sophisticated kind of come in and help me think through some of the things I didn't even know to think about, right? It's just a different viewpoint because they saw it in this business or this industry, and now we're applying it to mine. Right. And that's kind of the things we try to do at Western when we have a, a client is, hey, have you thought about this? What about this? How does this impact your business? Because we've seen it impacted over here. Yep. All right. Last question. I'm sure you get asked uh, often by call it folks coming out of college. I know you're really involved with kind of TCU's business school and and, and that was a big part of your life. Uh what advice would you give to kind of incoming folks out of college that are getting in to call it the M&A investment banking industry? What would you tell them? Don't do it. No, I'm just <laughs> yeah. kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, think like, really hard yeah, about exactly. this. Know what you're getting into. I think that's uh, I think that's imperative, right? I mean, it is a demanding career path, right? And it's yeah. all I've ever known. I love it. I mean, I enjoy the fast pace, the traveling, meeting business owners, hearing the story. I mean, again middle market and privately owned is way different than public company. All the people we deal with took a risk, got credit card debt, borrowed money from a family member or a cousin or whatever, took a risk and then grew it. That's a fascinating American story, right? I mean, that is what's built this country. And so that's awesome, but it also demands some sacrifices and some trade-offs. And there's this concept that we have at Western about kind of a sense of urgency, right? You have to have the sense of urgency because every single deal is precious. Time kills all deals. The longer it takes to get something done, people move on. They're not motivated. Things change. Maybe there's something in the business that blows up. And so it creates a different type of business, right? I mean, you got to know that what you're getting into is pretty demanding. Focus on the fundamentals and the technical side if you're an incoming analyst because all the financials matter and how to model and all that. But at the end of the day, also be prepared to, to utilize your network because this is a relationship game. Yep. And if you don't like people, it's probably not your best bet. Yep. If you just want it for a fundamental skill set for two years to learn how to do all the cool stuff, great. It's fine. You can go do whatever else. But if you want to make a career in it, um, it has to evolve from the technical piece to truly kind of, as I've evolved my career, talking to people, bringing in business, bringing in deals, trying to 
create opportunity yeah. that otherwise people don't see. Yeah. Right. And so you just have to know that that's what it is going into it. George, this was awesome, man. Well, this was fun. Thank, Thank you. you very this much. This was really interesting. I enjoy talking about it. Um, you're going to get a hundred business owners that call you <laughs> in the next week ready to sell. I can promise you that. And if, it, I mean, if they don't just, it's not my fault. That's all right. No, that's okay. I'll take the blame, but no, this was fun. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed doing it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks man. buddy. You bet. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.